So I thought it might be a good time to announce the founding of my new venture, HolisticPianoAcademy.com. Um, I realize it's raining coaches out there, but I'd like to thank my 22 plus years of experience as a professional musician and interdisciplinary artist slash educator. And more recently, certified fitness coach and therapist is a combined skill set I could use to help people and contribute to the ecosystem in a manner that feels authentic and fulfilling. I'll be keeping you abreast of further developments with regards to the holisticpianoacademy.com. Um, in the meantime, do feel free to drop in and have a look at what we do. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. FYI, just so you know, we're on tape now. I'm legally obliged to let you know. Um, Daniel Harris, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, man. Is, did I say your uh, name right? Is it Hires or is it Hiris? Well, Hires is more close to the actual name, I guess. Uh, I've gotten used to a lot of mispronunciations of my name. And <laughs> in fact, I, I support it because... So the name is originally from the US and... Hmm. Um, well, I grew up for a long time in Germany as well with my mom, and I would see how people would just absolutely butcher the name into Hayas, oh, and I hated that. So what I did was I taught everyone around me that it's actually pronounced Hyrus, which is not correct either, but at least I think it sounds better than the alternative. And so people just started uh, using that pronunciation. And so I've gotten used to that one as well. So it's somewhere between Hyrus or Hires, uh, just not Hyas. I feel like I have a good idea about what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> At least some of, the issues, some of the topics anyway. That's great, because I actually am going into this like really without a lot of preparation or having something that I'm trying to talk about. So. Excellent, excellent. That's the idea. These are conversations, they're not interviews. I mean, um, the whole idea is, I mean, I curate my guest list pretty carefully. So um, it's, but it's uh, the idea behind these conversations are to keep them spontaneous and conversation-like. These are not formal interviews. I do start off... Um, with um, a bit of a reminiscence uh, with regards to how and where I met my guest. And in our case, it's been a very, very strange, a very, very uh, synchronistic case of passing ships for years now between multiple countries, between uh, well, Germany anyways, uh, even Spain a few times, and even India, until um, we finally managed to meet in Lisbon in one of the craziest nights of my life, which I want to have a chat with you about because I never actually got to catch up. But uh, I remember, um, do you remember how we actually like ran into each other? Because I realized I do. So what I remember is we actually got purposefully connected by a mutual friend, Rita. Yeah. And she just had this feeling about the two of us kind of being on a similar wavelength and being able to connect easily. And and then we did online. And as you said, for the longest time, we only knew each other online. But through kind of seeing the way you are interacting with the world, uh, I definitely had this feeling that we would get along quite well. And 
I think we've been engaged in a couple of conversations online as well, where that feeling just got reinforced. And yeah, I think that's the, at least from my perspective, the shared history that we have. Exactly, you bang on. In fact, I uh, remember finding you over a TCK hashtag of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I remember Rita saying, mentioning something about TCK in one of her posts. She was just about getting privy to the terminology and its uh, implications. And I remember finding you there after which she introduced us. Now, in this day and age, you know, post-COVID, it's not a big deal. People meet like that all the time now, increasingly more so in online communities they resonate with. But back in the day, it was like a huge deal. I remember saying, oh, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but this was what, four or five years back? Mm, And it still wasn't as common, at least not as common as it is uh, in this day and age. So uh, either way, glad to have made this connection, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, back then or... I've I feel like I've been living on the internet for a while now. Yeah. Um just because also kind of moving between different countries, the only way to stay in touch with people really is doing it online. I hear you. But to actually connect with someone who I hadn't really had a personal interaction before with, that only happened on a professional basis, you know? It wasn't really anything that I would do with kind of private contacts and so that was definitely something special for me as well wow i feel honored man cheers i'm trying i'm trying to think back if that's no i I gotta come clean i've had i've had that instance quite a few times uh like even i've met a couple of uh my ex-girlfriends that sounds so dodgy when i put it that way but uh you know women i've actually been in relationships with a couple of them Mm -hmm. happen to have been people i met online but they were artists and musicians too so uh, um, it was the art and the music which would which got us connected through online platforms, yeah. and uh, we eventually went on to forge stronger connections. So I got to come clean. It wasn't the first time, but it was probably the first time I connected. Uh, you were definitely one of the first TCKs I connected with, like in person. This was just about the time I was coming to terms with, you know, what a TCK means uh, and how it's um, played a role in my life. I was like. It's still something I'm passionate about in my own way, though. Um, but at the time, it was like the the awakening, if that makes sense. I'm obviously dramatizing mm. when I say that. Um, so you're one of the first, one of my first TCK buddies, if that makes any sense. For the record, I'm not into labels as much uh, as I used to be anyway. Um, you want to tell us how your TCK journey's been? Yeah, well, to be honest, I'm also, you know, ambivalent a bit with labels like that. And to be quite frank, I never felt like I fit in, you know, the stereotype of what a TCK is. Exactly. Um, Just as well as I guess I don't fit in with other labels, I think, that people kind of see me in. But yeah, I mean, to just give you a bit of a background, I mean, my story starts when I was a few days old. I was found on the doorsteps in a neighborhood in Seoul, South Korea, as a few days old baby. Wow. And from there on, I was brought to the police station and then to a foster family with whom I spent the first three months. And then I was adopted by a German mother and American father. So in some ways, I am an adoptee and also a TCK. However, where most TCKs, or many, I would say, are kind of 
hopping to different countries every couple of years. Um, what I did was I kept kind of oscillating between the two cultures that my adoptive parents have come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so between Germany and the US and um, kind of built a third culture in between there of being adopted, being kind of very visually not from either of the two cultures mm-hmm. and uh, then not really having any kind of stable foothold in either of them for for a while. I would say well into my teenage years, I didn't really feel like I've, you know, um, arrived although that's that's maybe a high bar to to come by to like really arrive in a place but um yeah that's i think my story wow man and around the whole identity of i think the the tck thing um i do enjoy being on some of those uh, kind of forums and I, I still see people posting around these types of issues and i can identify with some of them and i do notice that i also have an affinity for people who grew up in this way who didn't just have like one lens through one place or country that they've grown up in and and I tend to connect a lot quicker to those types of people. But um, still, when when we're talking about labels, I feel the same unease, I think, that you uh, you alluded to. Absolutely, man. Wow. Um, the way I see it, and obviously, please feel free to correct me at any point, you're not just a TCK. There's a lot more dimension to your story as well, additionally. Yeah, I mean... To me, I think that's what language is, you know, it's kind of trying to simplify the reality in a way that makes our brains able to understand it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I hear you. or to use it, um, if that helps people understand a little bit of my identity and they can relate to that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I just realized that striking that balance between articulation to try and help people understand where you come from to a certain degree and being slapped with the label, you know, it's such a fine line between the two. It's always been very challenging for me. Absolutely. And I mean, there's always this kind of discrepancy, I guess, between, you know, like living a life that has been labeled in something. And kind of the, the on the one hand, the perceptions that uh, people have then and project onto you. And on the other hand, like how you or how that kind of framing also shapes your own understanding. And I think there is a lot of liberty to be found uh, if you're kind of if you can drop that framing in the way that you understand yourself. And that's, I think, something that I've, yeah, been trying to. Uh, work on a lot over the last years to, you know, like not understand myself through the frames that I've probably built up over the last years. I, that sounds a little bit uh, uh, maybe kind of kind of abstract, but not just to maybe not put it in not more anyway. concrete. Yeah. No, not you know, in more concrete terms, it's just like, you know, there is a professional identity that you build after a while. And for me, that is that uh, I see myself as kind of an activist and social innovation entrepreneur. Um, however, if that is the only way that I start to look at the world and that defines, you know, me on this spectrum of am I 
kind of like being a good activist or am I not being a good activist, I think then I'm losing some of that, you know, three-dimensionality that life does have to offer. So yeah. that's kind of what I was trying to get at. That, no, actually, that's a very beautiful sentiment, which uh, personally helps me a lot. Uh, uh, you just helped me uh, clear up a lot of confusion uh, that I've been dealing with, uh, incidentally, in the recent past. Because mm. um, especially since uh, post-COVID, my entire infrastructure is going through some major changes. You know, uh, my plans are to take all my activities and um, businesses online over the next uh, uh, few years. Um, not just because of COVID, it's, it's been on the cards for a while now because location independence is something I can't really uh, afford to compromise on one way or the other. Um, mm. And I noticed how it's, it's way trickier than I thought, partially because uh, it's almost like, you know, for a while it's been, without us realizing, okay to live a double life of sort. You know, we had that online thing going. And then we have mm. an offline world and they're coming increasingly closer and the lines are getting increasingly blurred to the mm. point where I, you know, I'm not even sure there's a huge difference between what I do online and offline anymore. Mm. I'm also on the fence on how I feel about that. It's still stuff I'm processing. But long story cut short, I've noticed that, uh, you know, that you just helped me out a lot by uh, reminding myself that, you know, there are... Uh, lines that probably should be taken into consideration, you know, to uh, not just identify, not get lost into a label um, we've established to help work, for example, in our personal life. Was that? No, no I'm mm. sounding abstract. I think for me, like one key thing there really is, or a pattern that I often fell into was really to rebel against these types of labels and i think that also oh, yeah. has the potential to you know limit you and define you if all that you're doing is try to show that you're not this know, label right? that someone else put on you yeah. and that's something that you know like i'm really i think more working on to to break free of and where i see that there is a lot of kind of freedom that comes with with that, with that change in perspective that like even just questioning the idea of whether this label is a frame of reality that we should accept or whether that is also just an incomplete understanding of the situation. And if we just use maybe a different understanding, you know, things make a lot more sense or there might be a lot less kind of cognitive dissonance there. That's very beautifully said. You want to elaborate a little more on the experiences that have led to this conclusion? Well, so as I said, I mean, I always understood myself as kind of someone who's trying to work on social change, mm -hmm. um, especially with regards to the way that our economic system is kind of destroying the basis of life on our planet. Mm -hmm. And this kind of framing of myself as... An activist, I think, has also led to some, well, some limitations in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, a very simple example is, of course, an activist would never work with a evil company. I don't want to name them here, but, you know, a fossil fuel company. Right. And not only that, but I think there is a certain expectation of how an activist has to behave towards people like that. What do you think these expectations are? I'm, I'm genuinely curious. It comes back to, you know, the, the age-old in-group, out-group kind of thing. So mm. that 
even among activists, there is this kind of tendency to define the good ones that mm -hmm. are the in-group and the bad ones that are the out-group. Right. And I think that is very limiting in the way we try to understand even just a conflict. Not, people are not just either black or white, either for me or against me, either in my group or kind of the, you know, the enemy, but mm. that people are just very complex beings and they kind of all have their spot that they're trying to find in, in a very complex system of, of different interrelations and dependencies. And if I go out and define someone then as my enemy just by the fact of who they decided to work for, that will then limit the actions that are available to me to really create social change. And, you know, there is a lot of talk as well, I think, in activist communities around this idea of we need to be inclusive and we need to, you know, open our arms to different views. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say, of course, there is a certain limit people um, you know, who are obviously kind of going against like some fundamental principles of life that I disagree with. Right. Um, but I think we need to kind of differentiate between the player and the game. Very well said, man. So, you know, just because someone works for one of those companies, I don't know their situation. Maybe, you know, they've just had to deal with a situation in their life, be it a health of a family member or some other tragic event, and it just kind of forced them to to take this decision. And who am I to judge them for, for that action? Uh, what I think I'm more curious about is how can we take the situation that they're in right now and turn it into something that actually will support the transformation that we need? I hear you. And the big danger there, of course, is that the, the effort is being used to, you know, greenwash or to paint something in a different light than it actually is. And that's something that I really try to stand against in a, in a very clear way. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that I see the enemy in someone who, you know, is working maybe within a complex that, that I think is, is something that we need to overhaul. And... That doesn't only go for the other, I mean, that also goes for, for us. I think it's very dangerous if kind of we always just see or we feel too guilty about the actions that we do mm -hmm. and, that silence, and that will silence us to not speak out about political demands or what we think should happen in the world. So just because I might have traveled somewhere by plane, I think people should still be able to speak out against the um, pollution that comes from the airline industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are all people in the world and, you know, it's very difficult to, to or it's impossible to live a perfect life by any of these standards. And I think it's dangerous if we try to label people as hypocrites just because they did a certain action, but politically they feel that that action is actually not helpful to the future that we're trying to build. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, I mean, especially that airplane thing, man. I mean, as you can imagine, I'm as guilty as it gets as far as uh, air travel is concerned. Not yeah. traveling by air has, has never been an option for me. Yeah. I mean, I've been traveling by air since I was seven months old. No one even asked me if I wanted to. 
<laughs> and it's yeah. just something <laughs> I grew up with. And now with my family spread all over, like literally in different corners of the world, uh, stopping air travel will never be an option for me. Yeah. And maybe this is me just justifying uh, my uh, lifestyle. But the fact of the matter is the way I see it, the enemy here is not travel. The enemy here is backdated technology in the way it's done. Yeah, it is the technology. And in some way, it is also, you know, the system that produces kind of this this extreme need for for travel i you know i think you and i i mean we might travel more than the average person by plane but there is a whole class of 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 people who you know like are necessarily or for their job or for their function that they have in the society they're you know racking up air miles that we couldn't even dream of Oh yeah, I happen to have uh, a couple of very close friends who literally have to spend uh, each week in a different continent. Yeah. So I'm intimately aware of that lifestyle. We really need to be careful not to, you know, like demonize these people. Exactly. Because on the one hand, I mean, where does it, what does that really help? I mean, you're not going to change people's opinions by yelling at them. And on the other hand, it's just it's unhelpful, I think, in trying to understand how we can actually break out of this. And um, it's the same way that, you know, like a CEO of a large bank to me is not necessarily someone who is evil and needs to be fought against. But they, I think, they are also in kind of a, a prism of the system where they are just fulfill, fulfilling a function where they have themselves very little wiggle room. Indeed. Indeed. In fact, if anything, um, if uh, and obviously I'm not an expert on this. The way I see it, the people, you know, uh, the corporate dude who who is ordered by his multinational company to be in, in a different continent every week, or the CEO of a bank, they're the distraction from the fact that the system's actually severely backdated and has been needing an overall for a while now it's easy to use them as scapegoats mm. obviously I'm, I'm way out of my depth here i have and nothing close to the kind of experience or know-how with this regard uh, like you do but uh, i'm just thinking out loud here please keep going i interrupted you there no no worries i mean i guess that's something that you can relate to that you know, like no matter where you are kind of in that hierarchy, there are elements in the system that are not working for you either. Right. Whether that is that um, basically in order to feel successful, in order to feel that you are fulfilling your role, you need to not do certain other things in your life, whether that is spending more time with your children, being there for your family, doing some self-development that you would like, or just, you know, some fun action sport that you enjoy doing and that you can only do two weeks out of the year because that's all the holidays that you, you know, can really afford to take. So Exactly. That's really, I think, the the type of understanding that I think will help us move forward collectively. Because I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we build up more of this us versus them narratives and then just get kind of stuck like uh, fighting each other. Completely agree. Where I see the biggest hope to to really make some change is to understand how all of us are affected by these negative 
like systemic oppressions. And obviously, some people are more effective than others. I mean, when I think of the patriarchy, obviously, a woman will be much more affected than than me speaking here. Sure. But of course, we need to remember that there is a dimension of, you know, like what it does to men and boys if they are fed this kind of story of the patriarchy of, you know, not being able to cry, uh, not showing your emotions. And I mean, I think if we look at the mental health state of the world, um, that's something that kind of shows us that something there isn't working Absolutely, man. Completely with you on this. Here's a question. Um, when was the first time you realized you think differently than the mainstream? Oh, God, I was very young, I think. I had a feeling you were, but which is why I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, I think this... I mean, just because I guess I look different um, to the places where I grew up in as a child, like now I'm talking, you know, like between three and seven years old, mm -hmm. I think I always had that kind of realization. I mean, one thing, um, when I was around three or four, I was in the US, and my mom insisted a lot on speaking German to me, which I am very grateful right now. Um, but at the time, she was telling me that uh, I would say like, oh, mom, we're in the US, we speak English here, I don't want to learn German. <laughs> And um, I think that's already probably where I was aware of the fact that somehow I am different from the people that I'm that are around me. But I think yeah. probably where I like remember it the most viscerally was probably in first grade when I came from the U.S. back to Germany, yeah. and like I came to school. Oh yeah, and I really saw how different I was. Oh, totally with you, man. And how my experience doesn't match up and how it's very difficult to relate <laughs> to people who, you know, have had a whole cultural, like, or a different cultural upbringing because they've watched different TV shows, they've read different books and comics. Oh, yeah. And coming from the US, you know, like, I had a different, like, kind of frame of reference. So probably that was there where I just realized that, well, the world that we live in is not set in stone, but most of this is really made by humans and it can be very differently depending on where you are geographically. Damn. So, yeah, probably first grade that feeling really came, like going to school. Oh, hard relate, man. Hard relate. My experiences were very, very similar. It was when my parents uh, moved back, moved the whole family back to India. And I went to school in India for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm. I think I was about eight, nine, uh, and my parents spoke um, their ancestral tongue, uh, which is Bengali, mm -hmm. at home. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know the shit you said to your dad and mom, like, "Oh, when's dinner?" You know, it, it, that shit doesn't fly in school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> learning to learning how to order your dinner doesn't get you anywhere in school. <laughs> and um, my. Dad had this, uh, he was, he's a, he still is a bit of a patriot because he's the first generation of Indian, uh, he's the first generation of independent India. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the reasons he refused to settle in the UK. And, uh, and also when we came, came back, he refused to put me in an international school or even a British school, mm -hmm. um, which is why I started off with. So uh, I was put in the most... Uh, 
uh, like he made it a point to put me in a very um, I mean India is a very classy society mm-hmm. uh, there's no denying that he and he wanted me to attend a very regular middle class Bengali school and the tricky part is India uh, speaks English right you know it's still yeah. official language here but it's a completely different language so I was fucked if I spoke Bengali because you know it, all I could basically do is talk about dinner and I was yeah. fucked if I spoke English because I didn't sound Indian at all yeah literally fresh fresh off the boat fresh off the English boat and this was, uh, my uh, accent was uh, way more British that was the first time I think I was probably eight and I was like okay what is going on here I mean these people look like me and <laughs> yeah. apparently I'm one of them but I mean, what is going on here? I mean, wh- whose skin suit am I stuck in, and what's going on here? I mean, and where in India did you go to school then? Was that in Calcutta or? Yeah, yeah, Calcutta. Ah, okay. Yeah. We actually did do a stint in South India before too, uh, but that was just so ridiculous that it didn't. I don't even remember much. And also, funnily mm. enough, South mm. India is a very different culture altogether because. Uh, um, believe it or not, I actually didn't feel as foreign there because uh, South India is foreign to anyone who's not from South India, even to <laughs> Indians, because it's a completely different culture, a completely different language. So even my parents were foreigners, so they were being foreign with me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel left out. When we got back to Calcutta, my parents were uh, absolutely at home, obviously. Yeah. But uh, I wasn't. It's the first time I realized, uh, uh, you know, on the subconscious level anyway, that my parents and me come from different places. Yeah. And um, it's only now that I've I've been um, doing the processing with that regard. And my dad, for example, still won't admit it. Um, My mom, on the other hand, gets it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. How did I get into this school? There's another kind of element to that, that I have a two-year-old daughter now. And I live, you know, here in Spain, where that is not necessarily a culture that I'm deeply connected to, but my partner is from here. And actually, Mm -hmm. at two years old, now is the time that we're looking at schools for her. So this is actually really part of my day-to-day life right now, to think about what school do I want to send her to. And, Mm. you know, I am maybe not like a kind of, I don't know, patriot or anything to any kind of culture, but... I kind of, uh, or, or I think I'm doing what your dad is doing. So we are choosing a local school here. I really don't want her to grow up in kind of this international school environment. I want her to feel kind of rooted here, even though she will always have, you know, like the different roots. She will look uh, a little differently. She will have German. I speak, I'm very strict in a way that I've taken over this, what my mom did to me. So I only speak in German to her and her German is, you know, developing almost as well as her Catalan. Um, And yeah, I'm having, you know, a lot of thoughts around that as well of, okay, how do I want her to grow up? And I guess I'd be curious because you mentioned that in uh, the international school and sorry if I'm turning this like podcast thing around, but no, no, please do. This is you're the guest. Would you have liked to gone to an international school? 
thank you for asking me that. And I think there's a huge difference between the situation your daughter is in a good way and me. Yeah. And that is, she's two years old. I was eight. Mm-hmm. I had, I, I was very clear on who I was. Mm-hmm. I was a dude from London and I had no doubts about that. Yeah. Except I was brought into this foreign environment. And, you know, here's the thing. When we came back from London, I thought we were going on holiday. <laughs> Just like every other year. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know we were moving to India. And the next thing I know, yeah. you know, we're staying way longer than planned. So. <laughs> and to be fair, my parents weren't sure they were moving here long term either. They were trying it out. Yeah. You know, they were giving it a shot. And uh, they thought if it doesn't work out, we'll just go back to the UK. So uh, I was a, I was an eight year old who was who already had a mind of his own mm-hmm. uh, and a personality of his own. So yeah, for me, I would have definitely preferred to have gone to an international school, especially in that day and age, because India was a very different country uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, closed closed economy. So the only way you could have any form of interaction with non monocultural people was to be in these somewhat snobbish yeah. affluent privileged international circles yeah. and uh, I'll, uh, and that brings me to the second point that's another reason I don't really there's a part of me especially the younger TCKs the ones who are in the 20s now I don't connect to them at all I find them privileged as fuck mm-hmm. like entitled yeah. I don't connect to them mm-hmm. it's like uh, you know uh, you know what international school do you go to you know that's where the conversation even starts off uh, with Whereas the actual uh, definition of third culture kid is not is a little more, uh, mm, I would say, broad-minded. It's not so much about which school you went to. It's more about well, the definitive um, definition um, is I think anyone who spends their formative years in a culture that's different to their, that of the earlier generation. It's it's a pretty simple definition, really. Yeah. But now it's just like any other label, it's just kind of exploded into its own isms. Mm. Which is why, similar to you, I mean, I'm comfortable with being a TCK in that part of me, but it's not, the, it's not all that I am either. Yeah. To be honest, I think it will just become normal in the future. Exactly. I mean, I already see it nowadays. I mean, when I look at exactly. kind of maybe not necessarily Spain, but particularly because I went to school in Germany and I go back into like schools and see the the types of classes that are now graduating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like of a hundred people in our graduating class, there was, you know, around three or four kind of foreign kids, brown people. And, you know, you go now and it's like probably a third, maybe even even half of the kids have some kind of background of like international parents. Exactly. I completely agree with you. And so I think in probably another 20, 30 years, that might even be meaningless, that term, because then people like kids are just going to be like, yeah, okay, what, you know, what are your two cultures? It'll almost be kind of a special case to have two parents from the same culture. Ah, yeah. I agree. That makes me very hopeful. I mean, I really think that, you know, like kind of getting out of this idea of being so, you know, place-bound that leads to things like, you know, nationalism, racism. I, I think that is a good development that we have more people who kind of 
are not tied or are not tying their identity so strongly to kind of one place and one people. I mean, that doesn't mean that I don't see a role for, you know, being connected to the places that you grew up. And, you know, there is, I think, a lot of beauty in um, leading a place-based life or being connected to where you are. But I think, you know, there is a dangerous kind of like uh, uh, line that you can cross over uh, whether you are grateful to where you are or whether you feel a pride of association to, you know, like a certain kind of uh, um, nationalistic story that has been created. I completely agree, man. I, th I think the trickiest part of the whole nationalism thing, the biggest myth about nationalism is that it comes from pride. It doesn't. It comes from fear. Mm. Nationalism was never something that came from pride. It was fear, fear of uh, not being enough. I mean, if you look at the history of countries who overdid it with nationalism to a point where it got fascist, mm. it was always about fear of not being enough, mm. you know, fear of losing their culture. And the way I see it, maybe I'm being extreme, Arana, if, if your culture loses itself that easily, was it legit in the first place? <laughs> mm. To me, in a way, it's just... It's the way you understand what culture is. And I think there, um, there are somehow two opposites to this in, in where some uh, understand culture as something that is static. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I think that goes alongside with, you know, these mindsets of having static mindsets and growth mindsets. And right. to me, when I just look at culture, it is something that is that is not like a thing, it's not a building, it is something that emerges out of the interactions of thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Exactly. And that is always kind of in flux, that is always a negotiation. And of course, when we describe certain things, we need to kind of have a snapshot of that moment in time. But I mean, if we look at the the what really would be German culture, you know? Like, you go and ask someone who grew up in a southern uh, Bavarian village, and you go and ask someone who grew up at mm. the north coast of Hamburg, I mean, probably exactly. they will have very little in common that they can really identify identify with. And, you know, now living in a globalized world, oftentimes I can have more things in common with someone who... I don't know, lives in another urban metropolitan area on the other side of the Atlantic um, than someone who might live in the same country as I do, but just in a, in a small village, um, even though those differences are also getting smaller. But, you know, like, I think there is a lot more that you can relate to if, you know, you live kind of an urban life or you live more on the countryside. I completely agree. Uh, you just basically uh, did like a way better job of what I was trying to get at. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Not to steal your idea or anything, but that's pretty much exactly what I was trying to get at. Culture is alive. Yeah. It's not stale. It's yeah. it's not frozen. You know, if it's it's not culture, if it's frozen, if it's frozen, it's history. It's not culture. But I, I feel like people tend to. Uh, confuse the two very often. They confuse history with culture. You know, one is uh, intrinsically in the past. The other is a living, breathing, constantly evolving present. Uh, 
now I don't know how to taper that sentiment <laughs> off, but I, I hope I got the point across. Well, <laughs> I got a little carried away there. <laughs> I mean, that's great. No, that's a good conversation then. I mean, to me, there's this, there's these forces that are trying to, you know, define culture and you know, to some degree, I think this happens through institutions like either political institu institutions or, you know, important uh, um, organizations in in a culture or in a country. And, mm. you know, like to me, I think the this idea of, okay, like how can we define culture? How can we again say this is our culture and this this maybe not is in the end all related again to the power that these organizations are trying to have? So when I was studying, um, I was studying communications and kind of really getting into some cultural studies and... There was this, I forgot his name, but um, he basically said that you can have, I, I'll allow you to have any power that you want in a country, whether that is to the political power or the power to print the money, as long as I can influence the stories that people tell each other. And Wow, that says it all. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's this kind of, I don't want to call it war, but, you know, there is kind of a competition or a struggle out there of the different institutions for um, kind of making meaning mm. and making meaning of the world. And I think the, their power increases the more people actually see the world in a similar way to them. Mm -hmm. And maybe that gets back to the part that I mentioned initially that... You know, like, I think that's that's where we grow up in, you know, that's kind of the, the status quo that we come from, because as we're young, we're trying to, you know, just learn and absorb these types of things. And that's really where I think this idea of unlearning is so important, that we kind of so challenge the notions that we have held dearly before, because unless we really challenge them... They're always going to continue, you know, and not only continue in my life, but I think there is almost something intergenerational about the way that we pass on, um, you know, different ideas, different like understandings of how we see the world and, and also traumas. And, you know, now that I'm a father and like I, I'm more aware of that and I'm really trying how can I then avoid that or, you know, some days I think, like, actually, you cannot avoid it, you know, eventually, everyone will have their traumas to, to deal with. And, you know, like, there's no perfect way to raise your child. But I, I do want to be a bit more attentive to kind of what I am passing on to my daughter. And mm, lineage. Yeah. I hear you, man. That's that's a very commendable sentiment. I totally support you on that. Um, I want to actually pick your brain a little on how fatherhood has been for you, because um, I know it's, it's. I mean, obviously, it's been a huge event in your life. Uh, before I go there, I want to know when was the first time, and this is a counterbalance to the f other question I asked you earlier on. When was the first time you realized how German you are? I think that's something you only notice when you're with people from another culture. So mm -hmm. I think there was 
always something. Probably in my youth, when I really started to kind of do trips on my own, may that be through some kind of school trips or just, you know, like uh, starting to do holidays with some friends rather than parents, and then being in different contexts and then meeting people who, yeah, not have the same context that I grew up in. I guess the big switch was after I finished high school in Germany, I went to study in the US. And that's where I really felt it, you know, like, I, you know, was returning in some way to the US. Mm -hmm. But I also was a foreigner. Yeah, I can intimately relate to that as well. That's how I felt when I moved back to Europe when when I was 20. Uh, same story, same story, finishing school, doing college in Europe. But tell me more, um, what, what would you say were the core aspects which uh, where you found the underlying differences to be the most prevalent? Well, at that age, I think there was definitely some element of, you know, the German angst, the mm-hmm. the negativity the pessimism i mean you know that's something i think when you come to the us mm-hmm. is just a very different perspective you know where it's like much more of a a can do attitude we're kind of optimists because we right. you know just that's the the way we like to see life like you know it can go a bit too far in that you know you start sugarcoating things and everything um exactly but i think you know, like that was really the the most obvious part where, you know, I was always in this struggle because in Germany, I would be that person who is a bit more on the, you know, can-do side who, you know, sees kind of opportunities in challenges and not just the problems. Right. And, and, you know, right. then all of a sudden, I'm like among people who are even more so than me. And, you know, like that then could create that actually I try to retreat back into the role of, okay, well, since I am most naturally inclined here to see the problems and to criticize, I'm just going to become really good at criticizing this among kind of a group of, you know, Americans. Um, Damn, bro, I'm so there with you. So, yeah, I think that... That is one part. Um, and I think another part was really, and, you know, this is where the activist in me, I think, grew into. Because, I mean, I never, or, or my family was not a particularly environmentally conscious kind of uh, uh, family. It, it's not that this, you know, like has been put or, or given to me on a silver platter, but being in America, like it was very clear that there was a certain conscience about resources that I grew up with that a lot of people there didn't. I mean, from you know, just my mom telling me to turn off the light when I'm not in a room, yeah. or you know, like some idea of okay, excessive waste is not necessarily good, and if there is an easy way to avoid it, yeah, sure, we should be doing that. And then, you know, coming back then into the US, I mean, that was like 2003. There was very little consciousness around that, especially in a university context. And so I think that's yeah. where I really started to to think about these kind of issues and where I asked myself kind of questions of, you know, how do I want to show up in this world? And that has never really been that much part of my thinking when I was a, a young person. Like that 
kind of responsibility part or that that idea that, well, what I do could, in the best case, have some kind of meaning in the world, um, that developed over there in the U.S. Mm. Beautiful. I can so relate to that, man. I go through something very similar when I'm in India. Um, you'd be surprised at how much, uh, on a lot of levels, the U.S. and India have a lot of parallels. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm not the only person who says that, by the way. A lot of my American friends have noticed, too. Even though both are very diverse countries. But there is that, yeah. you know, that bypassing, that spiritual bypassing aspect to the way things are can be uh, very much it's definitely here i mean i mean at this point right now after 2020 on my own in a mm. 15 square meter room which was not meant to live in long term in germany <laughs> i'm kind of happy to be here i'm in india right now so i'm yeah i'm enjoying the not giving a shit part uh, i've got to be honest about that but uh, i also know that it's 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 a temporary situation in in the past yeah. i've really struggled with the bypassing it's just like oh, come on i mean i get it you know we should all have a positive aspect to life but you know <laughs> um not the cost of just denying yeah. shit uh, which is blatantly yeah. out there and staring you in the face you know are you kidding me um uh, i can intimately uh, relate to that i can also intimately relate to the uh the um, what's the word i'm looking for the adamant uh, negativity that is also inherent in Germany too sometimes it's I find it to be uh, at some point you know forgive me for being so candid about it but I also feel it's mm. it's pro programmed into the psyche into the German psyche at a level so deep that there's a lot of work I find that still needs to be done to realize even how lopsided the perspective sometimes tends to be yeah. so it's like the other extreme you know um, somewhere in the middle would be a great place to be in yeah, I mean, to me, I think it's rooted at the level of it's a way to signify to someone else that you're intelligent. I think it's like the way that people in Germany demonstrate their competence to each other is the ability to kind of have some critical point about something. Yes. Which I think is interesting because, you know, like as I say it and as I can recognize it in others and myself, you know, it's still there. It doesn't, I still do believe that's on some level somewhere inside of me, that if I am able to find a critical point, mm -hmm. that that makes me somehow clever. To be fair, Daniel, it probably even does. I mean, there is a certain degree of truth to it. You know, critical thinking. See, you're also German. <laughs> of course, yeah, fuck it. I mean, it's where I've spent most of my life. It's, it's true. Exactly, yeah. It's true. I mean, critical thinking is you know, an inherent part of improving yeah. things. You know, problem solving comes from the ability to look at a situation critically and look for methods to improve yeah. upon it. The thing, though, that I find or where that I'm trying, I'm not trying to, you know, like fight this or, you know, to like really say, no, that's not true. But like... The way I'm trying to reframe this is then to understand, ah, okay, so I have been conditioned from an early age on to um, think that cleverness is a virtue or that, you know, cleverness is what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And that's really where I'm trying to work on myself to understand or to to bring in a different aspect that, you know, for me, I think has not really been so much in this culture, at least of my teenage years in Germany. And that is that I think 
you know, what really matters is being kind to each other and not how intelligent we are. And that's another thing where I'm really trying to, you know, like unlearn something that has just been so deeply kind of put into me through these these formative years and that's how i'm trying to to get out of this like narr- or limiting narrative of you know like either i can think that um it's clever to be negative or i can think it's clever to be positive i'm thinking like okay but why do i even want to be clever maybe in some situations yes but ultimately i you know think uh, the the goal of a human being is you know, how can I show up with kindness in this world? Amen, brother. I totally hear you on that. It's, the, it's that, um, I mean, half of my life has been a struggle not to come across yeah. as a total klugscheißer. I still do that. I'm sure there will be people listening to that, uh, to this, and, and feel the same way. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> Rest assured. <laughs> Rest assured. I'm reminded of the time uh, Jürgen Klinsmann mm. was coaching the U.S. soccer team. Yeah. Remember that? I don't know. Yeah. But the U.S. were doing really well. And I think they made it to the yeah. farthest they'd ever done on a World Cup championship. And I remember that they'd, they'd broken the record. They'd like made it to, I, don't, I, I can't really remember, quarterfinals or semifinals or something. Yeah, quarterfinals, I think. Right. And uh, Jürgen Klinsmann's reaction was uh, an immediate analysis of what they could have done better. That was his first reaction. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the U.S. media freaking out, like, what yeah. the fuck is wrong with this psycho? And they just couldn't get wrap their heads around the fact that this was the biggest compliment he could give them. Like in his books, he was probably showing them how proud he was of them by telling them of about things they should still be working upon. You know. Yeah. But uh, it it was a quintessential representation of how people's perspectives on the same thing can be totally different. Yeah. Um, in my experience, like uh, for example, I, I train. I used to anyway before twenty twenty happened. Um, at a jiu-jitsu school and my teachers both of them like for example they're really really good extremely underrated and uh, i'm so glad to have had them as my first teachers in this sport or art but i gotta say though a part of me would go back home every day like wanting to just sit down and cry because they were just so critical yep. it's like nothing i would do and nothing i do mm. will ever be good enough for them that's the part i struggle with you know It'll never be good enough to just get like a decent pat on the back. Uh, And I get like the rational part of my brain knows that, you know, they're doing it because they want the best for me. But the brain doesn't work that way. That's where the tricky, uh, that's where things start getting tricky because, you know, we're not machines and the human brain is a very complex mechanism. Old tape that the subconscious brain is picking up and the amount of processing it takes to understand why we feel the way we do. That's Mm. the difference between me and the machine. Mm. I mean, I feel. And even though I know that I shouldn't be feeling a certain way, that doesn't change it, you know? know, It just makes it worse. Me telling myself that I shouldn't be feeling the way I do, that just snowballs it into um, making me feel even worse. That's the part I struggle with the most in Germany. Like I'm thankful for like the, the problem-solving skills I've learned there, or just the critical thinking. But the way it, the messages are conveyed sometimes, at this point, I'm really exhausted with it. Yeah. Yeah, especially after last year, man, it just uh, got too much for me to handle. Absolutely. Had to make a getaway for a bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can understand that, yeah. Yeah, can you? 
That, that's reassuring. No, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, to me, I think there is another element there at play that I think of, and it's that the context that we live in today will also just, if that strategy was ever effective in trying to get people to to learning or to motivation, mm-hmm. and perhaps it can be if, you know, like there's nothing else for you than this challenge, and, you know, like you've dedicated your life to this challenge, then perhaps a such a critical kind of approach can really lead you to you know, a difficult place where then you can transform out of. Yeah. But I think within the context that we live today, where there is a million distractions every day, and you can just say, you know what, screw it. I don't want to learn jujitsu. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, like do judo now, yeah. or I'm just going to go skydiving, you know? Yeah. I don't need to confront exactly. this anymore. Yeah. It's become so easy to run away from these types of things that then... I think any merit that mm. was in this type of approach becomes yeah more more difficult because yeah it's it it you know it doesn't challenge people in a kind of healthy way that they will actually go deeper and you know like go maybe through the pain of it to to come out on the other side but they're probably just going to avoid that altogether and do something else so well said man yeah that was lit um i also what you just made me realize is i didn't you know problem problem identification and problem solving are not necessarily the same thing so um i think inspiration is a way more effective tool to solve a problem than i you know just hankering on how bad the problem is but in a way i think you know there is always you know sounds a bit cheesy but what's the balance of both and the interplay actually not cheesy at all you can kind of go into a problem mindset and really understand it and then that you also can go into okay well how do we solve it rather than just you know, show grief over the problem existing. Exactly. And I mean, this is something that I deal with professionally a lot while or when I teach kind of social innovation or I work in these types of environments because there is a tendency of oversimplifying the situation that we're in and just saying, ah, well, we just need now to move to green energy and then that will solve all of our problems. So now let's put in all of the development capacity into that. And, you know, the German side and he thinks, hey, wait a second, it's not that easy and it's not that rosy. And, you know, like these are and I see that especially in the last five to eight years where a lot of young people have been attracted to this impact sector and they come in and they, you know, Mm -hmm. understand one facet of the problem and they think if I can solve this then, you know, we're going to have uh, or, or we're going to solve climate change. And, you know, my perspective is on it is that these are problems that people have been grappling with for 30, 40 years. I mean, you know, like it was in the 70s that the Club of Rome like started talking about the limits to growth. And we are still living in an economic system that just necessitates unlimited growth. So... I think the German side in me helps to kind of, um, yeah, avoid that danger or that pitfall of oversimplifying things. And then on the other side, if I was only that, I would never get out of bed in the morning and never, you know, like do anything mm-hmm. uh, trying to to stop it. So there is also this American side of, you know, like this this 
endless optimism that we still can shape our destiny somehow, that there is still a possibility of you know, agency in the world and that when we do, you know, like our small parts, like that that can actually have a massive effect. That sounds like a great moment to dive a little deeper into the work you do. You want to tell us more? Well, I mean, if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, I would have been able to give you a really quick introduction in a few sentences, uh, you know, like having a, an elevator pitch ready for you. <laughs> However, over the last years, <laughs> I'm not so yeah. sure anymore how to introduce yeah. my work anymore. That, that is very sympathish to me. How do you translate sympathish into English? Mm, I don't know. Sympathetic is probably doesn't completely capture it uh, not really but uh, yeah but I, I totally relate to that i mean as i mentioned earlier you know like my self-image really is that of an activist in some ways um because i am trying to use the time that i have in a way that will move us forward as you know like as humans as a civilization um i do think we're at a point in history where we're confronted with existential questions of how have we lived over the past hundred or maybe even longer years mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how are we going to bring that into congruence with what we know both about the limits of the planet that we live on and kind of what we understand today about human like psychology about the brain about how we develop I think we, we know a lot more than, than we did 30 years ago. And I think that that is hopefully going to be one of the keys that can help us to, to solve this. Beautiful. At the same time, I, you know, like going with the unlearning theme again, I, I do believe that there is also a lot of value in kind of ancient knowledge in things that maybe in our neoliberal culture that kind of we live in has been kind of brushed aside as, well, this is just stuff that they used to believe in. And they also used to believe in, you know, like that dancing around the fire could cure an illness or something, um, you know, like ridiculing it. And mm. I, I believe that there is a lot of knowledge that probably our scientific tools that we have right now are not adequate to quite understand. Exactly. But when we look at how indigenous people kind of built relationships to the earth and their location, um, I think there's a lot for us to learn. Beautiful. I completely agree. That's something I've uh, actually grappled with all my life. Uh, I mean, my ancestral culture has deep roots into that space you're referring to as well. And uh, the time I grew up in the West was also one which was uh, quite skeptic. It was basically most of my ancestral culture would have been dismissed as old wives tales back in the day. Yeah. It's different now. Uh, I'm actually very privileged to live in a, in a zeitgeist where it's changing to be able to see that change. Um, like um, some of the modalities um, psychologists or even psychotherapists use in this day and age would have been yeah. completely scoffed at even 10 years back. But they've been proven to be effective. 
um, a lot of the uh, material and literature quantum physics talks about today, and I'm not going to be that guy who <laughs> quotes random uh, quantum physics uh, stuff without really knowing what it is, but you know, at least the direction they're pointing towards yeah. has been talked about in many ancient texts. Um, so it's it's very very heartwarming for me for me to uh, to hear you talk about this in light and in context of the major situations we face as a planet. You want to tell me more? Well, yeah, I you know like I am also no expert on quantum physics, but from what I see kind of emerging on the current research, I think that does make me quite. Like on the one hand, hopeful, and on the other hand, I think it conf like the the fact that it confirms some of these um, spiritual teachings. I would call them. Um, mm -hmm. I think to me uh, is is exciting because that's an area that we're where we're still exploring. You know, I think sometimes we can look at the world in a bit of a or get a little bit bored by how the way things are, you know, because uh, things have become like so so easily understandable. You can just Google pretty much, you know, most of the things that you're curious about. And yeah. maybe that makes people also just, you know, less interested or, or to put it like this, if you know everything about someone else, I think oftentimes, like that, you lose a bit of appeal because there is some something sexy about like a mystery. Indeed. And for me, like understanding that there are still so many parts of the world that we don't understand and where we're still trying to develop new knowledge, I think that what that's what makes you know the world and and life exciting to me. So true. And so. I'm very happy to to that those kind of movements and and those uh, um, things are coming out mm. into the world, and I hope that yeah, more people are going to think about or that more people are going to be aware that what they necessarily believed yesterday is not uh, like the the final kind of uh, the final word on the truth. Yeah. But that that is something that we're still kind of developing, and if they would like to, they can still play a part in that. Very well said, man. Mm. Here's two questions. It's actually the same. What do you think, in your opinion, is the biggest challenge we face in this day and age? And number two, what's the best we can do to contribute to its improvement? Well, not the improvement of the challenge, but to its solution. I know both are very blanket questions, I mean, and, and there's probably no easy answer to that, but give us some sense of direction with regards to this. Well, I've actually spent some time thinking about this. Uh, it's like I remember the last trip that I actually did before the pandemic was uh, that I was at an event in Paris and I spent around half a day with uh, a, a friend that I randomly ran into that day huh. uh, at a table. And we just had kind of 
people coming and going, some people he knew, some people I knew, and it was a really interesting table of, of discussions. And and one guy that came was like asking everyone the same question. So what are the three biggest problems that that you would see and how would you fix them? And oh, really? I only came up with two. So you only asked me about one, but I'm going to make it about two. And I think uh, for me, the first thing is the monetary system. The way money is actually produced by creating money as debt mm. is, I think, at the source of a lot of the problems that our world faces today. Because it locks us into a system that necessitates this unlimited growth. Because in order for that debt to be kind of serviced, we just you know constantly need to keep the, the economic machine going. And so... I think that is really one of the big structural things that right. locks us into the, the situation that we're in. And unfortunately, I don't have a good solution to that. I mean, this is such a difficult topic because in it is kind of intervo interwoven um, elements of, you know, who holds power in society? Um, and that's a question that... You know, like over the centuries, uh, people have have fought and died many deaths for mm -hmm. for these types of questions to you know preserve that. I mean, we can just see how today, when there's people in let's say supposed privileged groups, uh, when they have to give up a little bit of their privilege, that can to them look like that they're being oppressed. Indeed, and then that gives them a very legitimate reason to shoot against kind of um, that which is actually just trying to create some kind of balance that didn't exist before. So I think one person that I find quite interesting who has interesting thoughts on that is Bernard Lyotard. Hmm. He recently passed away, but he was not only an advocate for alternative money or alternative value systems, but his idea was not to replace the old system or fiat currency with a new type of monetary system, mm. but to have them exist um, side by side. And I think, to me, that sounds like the most likely way to get out of this, because if we just try to, you know, replace that old system by the new, you know, it's a little bit like, okay, the king is dead, long live the new king. Indeed. Um, you're just going to, you know, it might be designed slightly better or with, you know, a bit more equality in its intentions, but eventually you're just going to have a monopoly of, of that type of system and that will have its own kind of problems associated to it. And, well, then <laughs> one thing that I've been kind of thinking about more and more these days is just um, this idea that today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. Or if we put it a bit differently, that today's problems are all actually yesterday's solutions. Wow. Could you give us an example? I mean, that resonates with me. With me. Yeah, I mean, there, uh, you know, like the car was at some point a clear and great solution to a specific demand. Of course, it was much better than the horse. And in a world where we did not know about kind of the limits to 
uh, both the oil supply and the amount of carbon dioxide we can put into our atmosphere, um, that was a pretty good solution. So correct. You know, it feels so strange talking uh, about this. I literally went and yeah, I was choosing a new car for my mother yesterday. It feels so strange talking about this. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah. You know, but uh, I think that happens in, in a lot of areas. I mean, even, you know, like on the external world as well as on the internal world, you know, like uh, I'm part or, you know, I'm working on myself as well and part of some coaching uh, programs. And yeah, like I think one clear thing is that these thought patterns that we have that dominate our life today and might not be helpful that like or in a way are kind of seen as problematic those were probably a good strategy at some point in our life maybe as a smart usually it goes back to childhood you know mm -hmm. but probably there was a point in my life that a certain pattern uh, was really helpful to deal with a situation it's just that you know i've gone 20 years without updating that pattern and now i live in a different reality exactly. where that might actually be harmful and exactly. i need to you know make it visible or or confront it and so i think at the same way that happens as well on a human or a civilizational level that I talk a lot of, of, you know, crap about capitalism and knowing full and well that probably or at some point it was actually useful. At some point, this has helped us move forward as humans. Yes. It's just that I think that probably no system that will ever exist will be, you know, useful indefinitely because it's so much the of or the context is so important that we apply this system in. Indeed. So that's, I think, one of the answers that I would have to your question. And the other one is um, that I think we are living, and this goes back to the story thing that we've been talking about earlier today, is that we're living in a story of separation. And I think until we can get through this story of separation, you know, this idea that basically, well, um, if someone else over there loses their job, that doesn't affect me because I still have my job. Mm. Um, you know, that we're all individual little bubbles living in this world, experiencing it completely differently. And, you know, there's, I think, different ways to get in touch with another story, whether that is through meditation, some people uh, need some psychedelic drugs for that, or just, you know, more reflection. But, you know, the same way as an ant kind of doesn't only understand itself as an individual, but as a part of a colony, I do think that there is a lot of value in understanding us as an individual human, as part of the, the wider kind of human race, mm -hmm. and in that also as part of an ecology on this planet. You know, I think there will be a big mind shift when we kind of start, I don't want to say understanding as if I've understood something that is the truth and other people haven't, but that I think it's a really useful lens to look at ourselves, not separate from nature, but as part of nature, and that we have a role to play. There's this idea in, in biology of a keystone species that is just really, uh, that is yeah, fundamentally important for the ecosystem that they live in. Hmm. 
And I think that if we want to be serious about, you know, what is our role on this human planet, I think it is probably that we have been given this gift of, of the brain, of consciousness, and that in some ways we could then act as maybe nature's consciousness. But that does not mean that, you know, this old model of we are the masters and we are the top of a pyramid and, you know, like now we get to subordinate everything else below us and they have to work for our benefit. It's actually that, you know, like given the powers that we have, how can we show up to serve the whole ecology? And that's something, I mean, I never went too much into the work that I do, but I work a lot in, in workshops and do a lot of facilitation and work with communities. And something that I've really been trying to push over the last years is giving people a different perspective on that, as in how would they act if they were a plant or if they were an animal or very wildly, like, what would the rock want? Or what would the river want? Wow. And trying to see, okay, what would per, what perspective would that give you in terms of, you know, like how do we need to to shape kind of the our relationship with with our planet? And I've seen quite a few people who, you know, in the beginning they're like, oh my god, what is that? That you know, like where where did they fly you in from? <laughs> you know, but. Um, there, there's quite a few people who've really kind of taken this perspective change and it's helped them understand something about like their own purpose yeah. and about where they can turn to to find answers in a time where everything seems a little bit in, in motion. Hmm. So I think, yeah, this, this story of separation, um, there's this great thinker called Charles Eisenstein. I mean, I don't, you know, uh, subscribe to any one person's ideology or philosophy 100%, but I think he has a lot of really smart things to say about how we, or how this idea that we're all separate and our destinies are not tied to each other, um, how that is really kind of eroding our ability to make any change for the better. And I think if, you know, like we, we just look at it, we're all basically, you know, crew on Spaceship Earth. Oh, very much so. All part of one big soup, man. Exactly. Mm, I, I made that sound a little dark, as in soup, not, you know, not soup in the sense trouble, but just like one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, messing this up. Well, you know, this <laughs> concept of kind of the transformational um, kind of uh, metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly and how that there is this soup that exists in between. Really? Yeah. So when a caterpillar goes into the uh, cocoon, it actually completely destroys or eats itself. And it just becomes this soup of cells. Wow. And those cells then get put together into the butterfly. It's not that, you know, like it just starts growing wings off the back of, you know, like one side. But it actually, it completely decomposes and then it turns itself into a butterfly. And what's so amazing, I think, is that if you put a memory into that, you know, brain of the caterpillar that then completely decomposes into soup as well, that memory will still be there in the butterfly. Amazing. 
Yeah, well, well, that direction of thought resonates with me deeply. I mean, I have no troubles whatsoever latching onto that uh, school of thought. It's maybe because it's social conditioning. It's kind of what I grew up with. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to listen to these philosophies, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, philosophies from a perspective of solution seeking for me because it's mm. kind of like the basic fundamental premise cultural premise i grew up on does that make sense mm. yeah i mean I, you know very similar to you i grew up like living like a cultural double life of sorts you know spent most of my life in you know in the western hemisphere but also through my family family i've always had that connection to my ancestral culture and everything and mm. I'm not religious per se, but the, uh, you know, I, I actually I'm very careful going on the record with this shit, you know, with uh, the Indian government being what it is right now. Um, but the, uh, let's just say the ancient cultures I grew up with, which have the roots in India, they've been talking about exactly this since the beginning of time, as we know it. That oneness with nature, that non-separation, non-duality, like the core of what eventually went on to become Hinduism was called non-duality, Advaita, or oneness with everything, wherein there is no sense of separation with uh, anything, really. I think that that this growing up in between different cultures has led me to suppress, I think, parts that were not easy to fit in into the context wherever I was at, at a given time. time. Exactly. And yeah, I think that that resonates with you in terms of that this is something that comes from another culture that you've, you know, like intimately or to some degree grown up with. Yeah. Um, it feels like my worlds are coming together. You know, tying back to my earlier comment on the uh, that this is becoming norm- more normal, I think it will be a nicer kind of place when... We have more people that are kind of bridging these different ways of thinking and can, you know, like provide new ways of moving forward and new insights that come from from merging different aspects. Amen to that, brother. That seems like a great point to taper off our conversation at. We never got to talk about the crazy night in Lisbon, though, which is a pity. So uh, we were in Lisbon at the same time. We connected digitally, figured out that we were and that there might be an opportunity to meet up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in an artist residency program of this this great location, but alternative kind of art space um, in Lisbon. And I was... um, yeah, getting a little bit bored where I was that evening and uh, just kind of hit you up uh, to see what's happening on your side of the town. And regretted it for the rest of your life. <laughs> no, my God. What, what story would I tell if, you know, I hadn't uh, taken a cab and came over to, to that place? Yeah. And um, yeah, like we, we kind of met each other there. We, we hung out, listened a bit to... to I think some music that was playing there and just as we're having a drink, I think you were not drinking at the time, but I might have had a beer. Um, Like all of a sudden there's like a police raid and police coming in like kind of RoboCop like outfits. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Like a hundred cops. Yeah. 
and kind of like in the movies, you know, where they're trying to use that moment of shock yeah. and then, you know, like just all come into one when you're still trying to reorient yourself. Yeah. And so, you know, it was just like from one moment to the next, the room was just filled with like all these like, um, like Robocops. Yeah. And they put us all like in a line with like the face to the wall and they were like strips, well, not strip searching, I guess. They didn't make me, you know, like get naked, but, you know, they would go through all of our pockets and through bags that people would have and everything. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think after the two or three hours or ordeal that everyone had to go through, they didn't even find anything. No, no, of course not. You know, I don't know. Like, you know, they, uh, I think... It's not unreasonable that, like, you know, if you would take 100 people in Berlin off the street, that you would find, you know, like something that people are not allowed to usually possess. Exactly. Especially on a Saturday night. Exactly. But, you know, like they didn't. Yeah, that's actually the surprising part. We actually played a gig uh, that night. The craziest part is this event was promoted like Time Out Lisbon talked about this event. What happened is these guys, they were based in that building. It's like an old uh, palace, right? It's, in a, it's like a heritage. Yeah, building. beautiful. Place. Exactly. And for the longest time, the city council, from what I gather, didn't give a shit about it, obviously. And then, as you've probably noticed, I mean, Lisbon, like, I mean, gentrification is a thing everywhere, all over the world. But in Lisbon's case, even in the two years I lived there, it was like yeah. really fast. I mm. mean, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, what happened in Berlin in 10 yeah. years happened in Lisbon in about three. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so one day, you know, nobody really gives a shit about these artists who've been working in this palace and they had the permits and everything and the next thing they know some guy wants to buy it to make it a hotel or something and the thing is these mm. these folks they had all the permits and everything but uh, some guy high up on the ladder had the manpower to had basically harassed them with a lot of police force and they were hoping to find something there that evening so they could just kind of bully them into leaving the place and uh, yeah, and the craziest part is at the time my uh, my ex she was technically speaking an illegal immigrant. It's a gray zone because uh, she's Brazilian and Brazilians uh, Brazilians aren't aren't ever really yeah. um, deported from Portugal. They have a special status there. Mm -hmm. But she was in the midst mm -hmm. of having her visa renewed and had you know she didn't actually have it yet. So if they'd checked her papers once, we would have been fucked big time. But, uh, and this is the irony of it all. She's Brazilian, but she's white. Yeah. And she was literally one of the three or four people who was not checked. So <laughs> I think it's probably the first time I was yeah. like, thank God for racism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, what a crazy night, man. And then it was so surreal, yeah. like finally meeting you on that evening after like three years of trying to run yeah. into each other. And there have been so many places we've been in, like literally... Uh, and within a span of two or three days in Delhi, in India, in, in Barcelona, yeah. in Berlin, in, even in Mannheim. And then, then to finally meet yeah. in Lisbon and then that. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember that, you know, like you were really apologetic as if it was your fault that, you know, like you told me to come over there. But, yeah, you know, like uh, to... To be frank, it's not the first police kind of raid that I've been uh, party to. Okay. So, you know, like I, you know, it wasn't something that was very traumatizing. And, you know, like I think it's a 
good story to to have and i think you know like i certainly remember that night better than the people that i left who went to a pretty terrible club and they they actually told me that they you know like also didn't really stay there very long and the night was very short so i think you know still even with that experience you know like i i went away with a better story yeah you you look chill as fuck man i was very impressed and i did feel guilty because you know that was the reason we were talking and uh, yeah and i was very stressed out about uh, yeah about my girlfriend too as well so it was it was a really uh, awkward situation for me so thanks for being so cool about it man much appreciated for me, that was a, a positive and, you know, I didn't get arrested, so I'm fine. Yeah, I'm glad none, none of us got arrested. <laughs> I can't remember. I'm a musician, so I'm sure I've been in police raids, some form or the other. But this was like, I mean, a hundred armed cops with, you know, like bulletproof vests. And this and the, the dude, and this was another funny thing, like the guy who was uh, in charge of me, he like, like literally put my put me against the wall started kicking my legs around and here's the funny thing it was only when he said okay papers please where are you from it's only when i said germany he like li he literally took a step backwards that's another crazy thing about the, uh, about that evening yeah uh, the minute he realized okay german citizen it was like one step backwards and you know okay like leave this guy alone and he just moved on to the next guy as blatant as it gets really yeah some of the dynamics that still exist in this world yeah Daniel, where is the best way to find you online and to support your work? Oh, God, my website needs uh, some serious overhaul. But um, <laughs> you'd be surprised at how many people have been saying that of late. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's um, but the, the domain is daniel.echo or daniel.eco. People can also find me all over the internet. As I said, I've been living on the internet for, for quite a while. So if you Google me, you will find me. Yeah, very happy to hear from, from anyone who found this interesting and is looking to yeah bring out some of this work of transformation. And well, I work with organizations and, and groups on especially topics of of community of how can we be together how we can how can we uh, create structures and governance together in a way that is not you know following the old hierarchical models and also like i'm happy to work one-on-one -on -one with people in terms of um, developing their leadership capacity to a new story to a different type of leadership that goes away from leading through fear to well leading through love beautiful sounds like my kind of leading man yeah i think when you lead through love like i was about to say through servant leadership because that's i think in the end how i think it expresses itself that you see as a leader yourself not as someone that the other people um should follow because you're so great but that you have something to offer to people who are following a purpose that is bigger than themselves. Beautiful. Yeah. Amen to that. Absolutely. Completely resonates with me. Nice. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our shows so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love. Talk soon.
It's just another voice out in the crowd 